welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I'm your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hello, Energy Cool Whip. Ooh, Energy Cool Whip, but mm. with a K. Well, because the W. Yeah, and Whip is Wimmer. I don't know. Oh, whoa, you got way too complicated here. Look, you have so much, you have two weeks to think this But I don't think about it until you say, are you ready? And then I panic. So maybe we should just stop and tell them your real name next time. Nope, never. Although maybe it's in line with today's episode being more ad-libbed and sketch comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Not my forte. One thing I think of when I think of you, it's... uh, master sketch comedy artist that's true it's my whole job on the side okay oh my name's mariah rose well welcome this is laser graves a podcast about the 80s so if you like 80s uh congrats you came to a good podcast good job if you like 90s uh you should listen anyways mm-hmm. yeah i mean maybe you'll find something you like and discover you're a big fan of the 80s it's true and this kind of goes into the 90s briefly Mm-hmm. It does. It does. Everything okay, well, does. Before we get into all that, uh, what have you been up to? Because uh, inquiring minds want to know what we do in our personal life. Do they? No. No. Well, we <laughs> didn't get it. Yeah. We just got back from a week long road trip with our children. And that sounds super fun. But you have to factor in the reality of 40 hours, really more than, probably close to 50 hours with driving in in stops between here and there. So we drove from New Mexico to Minnesota and back. Yeah, it was long. It was. We went through some of the states twice, but 10 different states were touched by the toes of our family. Yeah, we tried to, we were hoping to find some interesting places along the way the very first spot we tried was closed when we got to town. <laughs> so we gave up. We gave up, although we later found out it was supposed to be Dorothy's house from The Wizard of Oz. But then when we read up on it, it wasn't her house. No. Nor did it have anything to do with the actual film set. It was just a house that kind of looked like the house from The Wizard of Oz that a local in Kansas thought they should turn into a museum. Yeah. And then they just filled with a bunch of weird stuff that I don't think is film props either, just stuff that relates to The Wizard of Oz. What I was really interested in was they had a warehouse of animatronic stuff. I yeah. had wished we would have seen that, but I probably won't be going back to liberal Kansas yeah. for that purpose. So Weird thing, though, is that that's not the first time I've been to liberal Kansas. That was weird. I didn't even know I had been to that town until we got there. <laughs> Everything looked familiar and I realized I had been there before. But, you know, even as funny as that sounds, uh, uh, Dorothy's house that wasn't actually from the movie, filled Mm -hmm. with stuff that wasn't from the movie, I still really wanted to see it. Although, I'm kind of glad we didn't, because when we got there, it was 107. Yep. And that house did not look like it had adequate air conditioning. No. So, that could have been the end of our road trip right then and there. Yeah. It was a really hot trip. We did make it to Minnesota. Got to do the really important stuff, like go to the Mall of America. Our children love that. Um, And then we made our way back. And if you have ever experienced Nebraska, Iowa, Kansas, those states, you know what we saw? And it was flat. Oh, so long. Do you remember that scene in In the Mouth of Madness? Yes. When it just keeps looping? Yes. That's what it feels like driving through Kansas farmland. It really does. Absolutely. It's just one little tiny town with a grain bin. 30 miles later, it's the exact same town. And you think, have we gone in, in a circle? And it lasts for like six hours. Yeah, it's, it's true. Oh, you did get pulled over, though. I did get pulled over. I was a little edgy. Our children were appalled uh, by your lawlessness. Yeah, but they needed to. I needed. I kind of did it on purpose to remind them that their dad comes from a shady background. <laughs> like, I'm not the clean cut guy they think I am. They turned on you real quick. Yeah, they judged me pretty hard. Uh-huh. Anyway, didn't get a ticket at least because I charmed my way out of that. I'm pretty my, sure it was with me. With my hair. I'm pretty sure it was me that got you out. I winked. Yeah, that's true. Well, yeah, I mean, you could just say I'm a female and you got us out of that ticket. Yeah. Anyway, that was interesting. Oh, and on the way back, we did find a really bizarre little town in Iowa. Yeah, I think it was Iowa. That said, uh, you know, an antique store here or something. And we were just all bored with being in the car and just wanted to stretch our legs. So we drive down, take the exit from the interstate, 
go a couple miles into this tiny little town only to discover the entire identity of the town is antique stores. They've yes. all converted their downtown to all be antique stores. And it was so bizarre and kind of fascinating at the same time. It was weird, too, because there were... Um it was just so happened that the weekend we were passing through was their na- or their annual antiques fair weekend. So all of these people from all over the country, I saw tons of license plates and from Canada were there with U-Hauls and stuff, just loading it up with antique furniture. It was a whole different weird world. It was really weird. Um, and I didn't manage to find a couple cool tapes in that store. Or in one of those stores was called Analog and it was all just records and stuff. And they had a couple shelves of VHS, and they clearly were a town that didn't have their finger on the pulse of Mm-mm. eBay prices, which always makes me happy. And I picked up a couple tapes I've been after for quite a while for like three bucks a piece. So uh, that works for me. Uh, that was pretty fun. But yeah, what a weird little town that was. It was just a strange trip. And boy, howdy, we were, were so happy to be home. Yes. And to see mountains again. Yeah, seeing mountains is big because we're from the Rocky Mountain region our entire lives and not being around mountains. When you're going through farmland, all I can think of is A, um, it all looks the exact same and I'm going crazy. And B, how many scarecrows are out here that are going to murder me? Totally. Because I'm glad it wasn't at night. Luckily, I would have I would have gotten scared. It's early enough, too, that the cornfields were low. Yeah. So they were... I would have seen them coming. Yeah. Uh-huh. Unless they were crawling. Oh, Ooh, no, never mind. Anyway. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, yeah, that's that's our trip. We're back. We're ready to record. We're ready to bring you one of our favorite movies from the 80s. Probably one of your favorites, too, if you have a soul. And <laughs> we're, we're hoping that you get something from this and enjoy it. This week, we are discussing the 1984 classic mockumentary, rockumentary. This is Spinal Tap. Through two decades... 17 classic albums, countless unforgettable concert triumphs. They changed the face of British rock music forever. And the best part is, they're back. Now, they're on the verge of the greatest comeback of all time. Rock and roll. This is their moment. Right straight through this door here, down the hall. Yeah, turn right. Their time has come. Rock and roll! Any minute now. Any second. Hello, stage! I think we're lost. There's a little jog there, about 30 no. feet. Jog to the no. left. Get ready. Get set. Heavy metal's deep. You can get stuff out of it. My name is Marty DeBerge. I'm a filmmaker. One man dares to probe the hidden secrets. I was just pointing at it. I... Well, don't point. Even don't even point. point. No, it can't be played. Never. I mean, can I look at it? Up. One man dares to hear the shocking answers. It's tragic, really. He exploded on stage. To questions like. Is the world really ready for spinal tap? You put a greased, naked woman yes. on all fours yes. with a dog collar with around dog her collar. neck and a leash. And a leash. And pushing a black glove in her face to sniff it. You don't find that offensive? No, you don't, don't find that sexist? Well, you should Listen have seen the cover they wanted to do. After years of vicious gossip, the official explanation was he choked on vomit. Well, I can't prove whose vomit it was. Years of ugly rumors. It's a passion. This is a fact. And you are Spinal Tarp? Oh, what's going on here? Hi. Now, the vicious, ugly truth can be told. Well, I'm sure I'd feel much worse if I weren't under such heavy sedation. place where eardrums go to die come the living legends of rock and roll lunacy. This is Spinal Tap. You know, it's like Hemingway said, you know, remember them as they were and write them off.
Okay, this is Spinal Tap. This is a big one from my childhood. I've I've seen it since I was a kid. Always loved it. Um, how about you? How young were you? I'm curious before I... Pretty young. I definitely remember seeing this on TV. I remember seeing it at friends' houses. And then when you're... By the time you're in high school as a musician in a band, it's kind of like a rite of passage. Okay. You can't really get the Spinal Tap references and jokes in a band until you've seen the movie. Sure. And it's inevitable if you've been in a band that somebody's going to reference Spinal Tap at some point. Yeah, you can't get through life without a Spinal Tap reference. Yeah. What about you? When were you? Uh, it was 14. 14? Okay. Yeah, because again, sheltered childhood. It wasn't until high school a friend was like, you haven't seen it and tried to shame me. And I was like, I'm from Montana. And then I just watched it. <laughs> it's so good. This is uh, Rob Reiner's first feature film. He'd go on to do all kinds of amazing films. The cast in here, which we'll get into, is just uh, one of the best casts ever assembled. It's mm-hmm. so much fun to watch. And it's just an interesting film that started uh, to very lukewarm praise. And then slowly, like every film we love and want to talk about on this podcast, just kept building and building to where it eventually became, you know, just a cultural touchstone in I- cinema. I'm going to argue, I'm going to push back here. I don't think that's true of most films we want to talk about on this podcast. <laughs> well, most films we we want to talk about found an audience later. Whether they found a big audience later is beside the point. Yeah, but you're playing fast and loose with cultural touchstone, though. Yeah, this is probably one of the bigger ones we've done, <laughs> yeah. actually. This, is, this would be considered a mainstream film for us. Yes, for sure. Well, before we get into what Spinal Tap is, the whole idea of it and the movie and everything, mm-hmm. we, we really got to talk about the, the central cast that was involved in this. But I do want to say Spinal Tap is a massive film with a massive cult following, and anytime we're kind of reluctant yeah. to do films like this, this is why we haven't done any Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Streets. It's because as a podcast, you just want to have fun and talk about a movie. But when you do really, really big movies, everybody and their mother and their grandmother want to write you afterwards and say what you forgot to mention because there's a, a ton of fun facts that you could talk about. So I'm just saying that because everybody loves Spinal Tap and there's probably a bunch of things that we'll fail to mention or bring up. But we trust us, it's packed with all kinds of fun stories and information. But we just cannot. We only have an hour. We cannot get to all the crazy things that happen behind the scenes and stuff. So I just wanted to put that out there because every time we do a big film, I'm like, oh, gosh, here we go. We're going yeah. to be called out on forgetting some random fact that was really important to somebody. We've probably read all the facts. We're leaving stuff out because, first of all, a lot of these facts lead you down rabbit holes of information. So if we've left out your very favorite fun fact, we're super duper sorry. And you can write it on a note and tuck it under your pillow. And please don't send us a letter about it. <laughs> uh, we really prefer only um, praising emails telling us yeah. how great we are. <laughs> yeah, we found that over the years, uh, we really ignore negative comments and we really seem to read positive comments. Yeah, it's not good for our mental health. <laughs> it's weird how that works. Oh, wow. We don't really actually get many. Uh... <laughs> we don't get any comments ever. We're just inventing this whole scenario. What's our mood today? Yeah, good luck. Okay, so yeah, good luck to you. Good luck to us. Say a little prayer. And before we get into the movie itself, we have to talk about the cast. And I was actually super duper excited. I've said super duper twice. I promise I'll stop. Uh, I was very excited to get a little more information on how these people came together because as we were watching it again, I just couldn't imagine these, what I thought were young (laughs) up-and-coming comedians, um, having these kind of connections. I was very wrong. As you will shortly see, these were not up-and-comers. They were well-established in their fields. But let's dive in. We're just going to cover a little backstory about our three main characters because I simply cannot go deeper in. There are so many celebrities in this film that you can go look into it on your own time. It's fascinating, and I highly recommend it. But let's start with our main character, David St. Hubbins, who will play the the co-founder of Spinal Tap, and we'll get into it a little bit later. But this character is played by Michael McKeon. Michael McKeon was born in New York. His mother was a librarian, so it sounds like maybe he comes from a normal background, but... 
Let's play a little twist of fate here. His father was one of the founders of Decca Records. So, oh, interesting. Oh, so this is where his musical background's going to yeah. come in. Yeah. Okay. So he already was plugged in from birth. Okay, that's interesting. I, I'm excited to hear all of this because I intentionally did not look into the backgrounds of all these guys. I mean, a couple of them I, I know a little bit of, but I don't know their upbringings. Yeah, so he lived a, I don't want to say a conventional life, obviously not. But when he was 20, he became a short-term member of the band The Left Bank. Okay. Yeah, he was on their album. Uh, just really short-term, he wasn't a permanent member. In college, he really began his career, his improv career, when he joined a comedy group. It's uh, called The Credibility Gap. Remember oh, yeah. that name? Yeah, they did a, a short rock opera. Oh. Yeah, you know who else was in there uh, was another member. Yes, this is where he met Harry oh, Shearer. Oh, this is where they met. I believe so. Okay. I, I read a few different sources. They may have known each other tangentially before that, but this is when they first worked together. Okay, so let's stop for a second. For people who maybe haven't seen Spinal Tap in a long time or are not mm-hmm. as familiar Michael that we're discussing right now is the blonde-haired lead singer of Spinal Tap, the fictional rock band that we'll be getting into. Harry, that you're just now introducing, is the guy who's kind of the the Lemmy idea with the Chops. uh, Chops, and he plays bass and stuff like that. He's always got the bondage on. Yes. So these two work together uh, in the credibility gap, but his real breakthrough was when he was cast in Laverne and Shirley. And Laverne and Shirley comes from a generation that is not ours, but they were, it was a huge show. Very, very incredibly popular. So this would have been a a massive break for him. Yeah, I remember him in this because I I used to watch it, you know, with my mom and stuff. It would come on and I'd watch it. So I just did not put two and two together. I didn't either. I had to go look up a picture Mm because I I had seen it because I watched Nick at Night a lot. (laughs) But he, his role is Lenny and uh, he was with in Lenny and Squiggy. It was like an iconic duo and eventually led to an album called Lenny and the Squig Tones. It was released in 1979. So it it was just like they were a little a weird pair in this show. And I think it was just supposed to be a one-off, but they they did so well and became so popular that they were recurring members on the show. Yeah, this vinyl that got put out is, a, is kind of a little collector's item now, too. Do you have it? I don't. I would love to get it someday. It's not like crazy to find, but it's just kind of one of those, if you're a fan, especially if you're a fan of Spinal Tap. Yeah. Why would you not want it? And actually, this vinyl brings me to this week's fun fact. Oh, here we go. So Christopher Guest is on the album. Okay, so Christopher Guest is our third core member of Spinal Tap. Yes, and I will get to Christopher Guest here in just a minute. Christopher Guest on this album played guitar... And he was not credited as Christopher Guest. He was credited as Nigel Tufnell (laughs) on this album in 1979. So five years before This Is Spinal Tap, his character from This Is Spinal Tap uh, is Nigel Tufnell. So it's kind of the first uh, incarnation of him. Exactly. I like when comedians or, or actors introduce character names that then later come into like a real form years Mm -hmm. later but it's like they've been throwing around this name for so long or when you're playing a game and you have to come up with a false name real quick you always go to the same false name oh yeah the fact that it actually then went on to become something is really funny because i'm sure at the time he didn't think oh i'm gonna turn this guitarist name into an actual fictional guitarist yeah it's amazing and lenny and the squig tones played a lot on dr demento and McKeon actually had a lot of crossover appearances on other TV shows as his character. So kind of like what you were saying Mm -hmm. is, and I think this was a lot more common back in the day when there was fewer options or there were fewer options. So if you watched, you know, one TV show and you saw your favorite characters from a different TV show, it, it would resonate with you and you would recognize them. I think now we're just overwhelmed with so many different TV shows that we wouldn't notice like that kind of a crossover. Right. 
But at that time, it was normal. And then in 1984, he had his iconic role in This Is Spinal Tap. And I just wanted to real quick tell you what he's gone on to do, because you'll probably recognize him. He has gone on to do a lot, including films like Plane, Trains, and Automobiles. He was an SNL cast member. He won a Grammy and was actually nominated for an Academy Award for his songs on a future Christopher Guest film, A Mighty Wind. Right. He wrote the song, A Mighty Wind, Uh and then something about being over Rainbow, he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Song or something like that. Yeah, it's a great song. And most recently, he has played the brother of Saul on Better Call Saul, and I had to mention that because it's in New Mexico. (laughs) Okay, so that's Michael McKeon. Yes. Let's scoot along to Nigel Tufnell, played by Christopher Guest. And I was most excited uh, to learn about Christopher Guest because I hold a special place in my heart for him because he's the six-fingered man from A Princess Bride, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. And I think every kid who grew up in the same era as me, it's a favorite. Yeah, he's really fantastic. So he's kind of the lead guitarist of Spinal Tap. Yes. Uh, when you're looking at the three of them. I was surprised to learn that Christopher Guest was born in New York. Where did you think he was born? Well, I thought he was British. Really? Well, he is British, but he was born in New York. Even after all the films we've seen? Well, yes, because I've heard him talk and he has a, an English accent. Oh, well, not when he says, I'm going to bite my pillow. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, but he was born in New York City. And the moment I read this, I was I was kind of like, is everything a lie? I thought he was British and he's he's an American. Is he faking his accent? No, he was, in fact, the son of a U.N. diplomat. So uh, for the U.K., his father was a baron. So his dad is British. Yes. Okay, that's interesting because his accent is real natural. Yeah. So I thought he must have been raised around British people to be able to have either that or he's like Julia educated, whatever. Oh. Well, so his father was a baron. That explains his, sno- his I don't want to say snobby accent, his very British accent. Uh, and he actually later inherited the title of baron himself. Really? Yeah, I think that they took it away. There was a whole rabbit hole about that, about inherited titles. And I think he lost his at some point, but I, I don't know. Oh, weird. You can investigate that on your own time. I didn't really want to go into British aristocracy and inherited (laughs) titles. Uh, And then his mother was the vice president of casting at CBS. So he also was born with a leg up. He (laughs) really had quite a lot of opportunity from a young age. Uh, His family history is also incredibly interesting if you want to read up on Christopher Guest's family history, I I recommend it, but probably not appropriate for this format. He grew up in the U.S. and the U.K. He studied classical music and later played guitar with Arlo Guthrie and got quite a a significant education, eventually graduating from the Tisch School for the Arts. Was his mom British, too? I don't know. Okay. I'm not sure, so... Definitely his dad. And it was his dad's second marriage. So I don't know if he came and met an American. That's kind of what I guessed and didn't investigate further. So when did he get into comedy? So after graduating, he worked in theater and then began performing on the National Lampoon Radio Hour, which was a thing. So he started sketch comedy pretty early on. Yeah. He created a bunch of characters, composed music, and wrote. And to describe the caliber of this program, we can say that he was working with people like John Belushi and Chevy Chase at this point in his life. Okay. Yeah, it was a pretty small group at that point. Yeah, the radio role segued into TV performances for National Lampoons, and he was making small steps in his career, but making huge connections behind the scenes. So while he wasn't a household name, he knew all of the household names. Like I said before, he was musically connected with McKeon from the album that they had worked on, The Squig Tones, Lenny and the Squig Tones. And then in 1984, he was cast as Tufnell, So it was just sort of a natural progression of them working together. And the character was not created for the movie, obviously, as we've already discussed. He'd already been credited elsewhere uh, within the album, but also on TV performances as Tufnell. So Tufnell was just his go-to character. That's pretty funny, because I don't think the other two had their names even 
formed or created yeah. by the time Spinal Tap was even happening. Just just Nigel had been really given the only name mm-hmm. that would stick. Yeah, and I think that they just went back to it when they were writing. After this is Spinal Tap, he was cast for a season of SNL. They actually all were. He appeared as Count Rugen, as I said, the six-fingered man in The Princess Bride, and then he went on to create his own iconic career writing and directing films like Waiting for Guffman and A Mighty Wind and so many more. And if you aren't familiar with his career in that way, I strongly urge you to check it out. So hilarious, so great. And he doesn't actually like the term mockumentary because he doesn't feel like he's mocking anybody. Interesting. So um, we should mention that Princess Bride is a Rob Reiner film also, Mm -hmm. so they had already been working together. But Christopher Guest, his real claim to fame, in my opinion, is the mockumentary, whether he wants to use that term or not, is Mm -hmm. it started with Spinal Tap, but he really perfected it, I would say, with Waiting for Guffman. Yeah. And Best in Show and all these. Just what he did, he did best. And so I think... That's really his legacy. Well, and being the husband of Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. I guess that's probably the other legacy he has. They got married the same year in 1984. Whoa, really? Yeah, it was a big year for him. That is a big year. Yeah. Oh, this is when she was like 80s babe, too. She's still a babe. No, now she looks like the Crypt Keeper. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm like the Crypt Keeper. Okay, that's enough. No, I'm kidding. She looks beautiful. But that was an inside joke. Yes. Well, not that inside. If you follow Jamie's career, you know. You know what I was referencing. (laughs) All right. Back to our cast. Uh, Derek Smalls is played by Harry Shearer. And he comes from the most modest background. His parents were not well connected. But don't worry. He gets plugged in real fast. I was going to say, for being the most modest background, he's probably going to have the hugest career of them all. Oh, Yes. Okay. Yes. Beyond all measure, I was shocked to my core to realize how plugged in he is. It's going to haunt my dreams. I saw you. You really set it up. It better be good. He was a baron. Did I oversell? You did. Okay. So he was born in California and began taking piano lessons. Sounds normal. His piano teacher had a daughter who was an actor, and she transitioned into being an agent for children because she had connections. And started representing him and got him a role on the Jack Benny program when he was seven. Oh, I didn't realize he was a child actor. Very much so. This is all really fascinating because I really like all three of these guys a lot. But I've just never, never sat around, you know, in an afternoon with a cup of coffee and thought, I should research their biographies. Like, it's just never occurred to me before. You should. I, well, I'm I, doing it right now. Here we go. Yeah. Let's I'm go. listening to this podcast. That's my research. <laughs> You're making it and listening to it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So from that point on, age seven, he was all showbiz. He was good friends with a voice actor, Mel Blanc, who voiced Daffy Duck, Bugs Bunny, Barney Rubble. And this is important if you know the trajectory of his career, because he does a ton of voice acting. Yeah. You've heard his voice for sure, even if you don't know his name. As a young child, he appeared in Abbott and Costello films. He worked in films, TV, and radio from seven onward. So he was. I didn't know that. Yeah, and if you go look at his filmography, it's really amazing. And then he decided he was going to go straight, I guess, and went to UCLA. And he said it lasted one semester before he just kind of plugged back into the show business world. But he still continued going to school and ended up attending grad school at Harvard. So he's incredibly smart, incredibly successful. In the 70s, he was an active member of the Credibility Gap, where he had met McKeon or was first working with McKeon. Okay. When the Credibility Gap broke up because McKeon went to work on Laverne and Shirley, he started working with Albert Brooks. And then Rob Reiner uh, was who he worked with next on writing a pilot for ABC. So that's where the two of them met. Yes. So Rob Reiner wasn't involved with these guys beforehand. I didn't see his name come up anywhere. Okay. Because I don't really know how, but I guess it was basically like there's a project coming and everybody got together. Mm-hmm. So, okay. I Well, I definitely know the pilot because the pilot is crucial to the story of Spinal Tap. Yeah. We're still in the 70s, 1979. And the pilot that was written was... Spinal Tap. It was all of them. It was written by all three members of Spinal Tap, as well as Rob Reiner. And it was just a sketch comedy bit. It was actually a music video (laughs) called Rock and Roll Nightmare. 
Really? Yeah. Weird. You can watch it. It's funny. But it was a, a fake music video, basically. And they were pitching it for this TV pilot called TV Show. And it was already like a mockumentary style project. Oh. And they put it out there and it just wasn't sticking. And But from it, they got some attention about the idea of turning the Spinal Tap idea into a film. Okay. So that's where this all started. And that's what got them all together. That was in 1979. And then basically they just developed the characters. They kind of figured out what they were going to do and started working on the feature film. As far as the style of the film, before we even get into it, basically the unifying rules or themes were that it was mostly improv, almost entirely improv. I mean, I read that there was over 100 hours of footage shot for this. Holy smokes. Yeah. And they're... Only cues that they were given were how a scene was supposed to start and end. And then it was basically up to everybody involved to kind of just find their own character's voice. That makes sense when you watch it. Yeah, for sure. And you can also see how that got even more refined in Christopher Guest's later films. When you get amazing cast, you know, people like Parker Posey. Yeah. Fred Willard and all these Catherine O'Hara that are able to improv and you can tell they were given hardly any direction. Just do what you do because they're all sketch comedy artists. But back here with Spinal Tap, that really was the beginning. And this was fairly unique, not entirely unique, but the subject matter that they were going to tackle is what made it unique. So the idea was to create a a fake documentary Mm -hmm. about a supposed real British rock band that had been around for a long time And they're about to put out a brand new album called Smell the Glove. (laughs) And they were going to go on um, an American tour. And Rob Reiner's character is the documentary guy who's going to follow them around the American tour. So that's the basic premise. Uh, What happens is that it's so realistic in so many different ways, even though it's a very funny film. That they ended up tapping into something that I don't think any of these improv comedy guys could have predicted. Right. Would become such a cultural phenomenon. But that was the basic idea. There was some plot, but the whole subplot with the girlfriend that we'll get into and stuff with the manager Mm -hmm. was created halfway through making it because there was concern that it was going to be like a Seinfeld episode, basically, where there there really was no point to this other than following comedians around and letting them ad lib that they were in a rock band right so i think that was a smart choice because it really does keep the film moving in a direction and and give you something to latch on to the other thing to discuss about this that isn't usually the case and when it is it's always fascinating to me is that as we already mentioned all three of the main cast members were musicians Mm -hmm. like really good musicians too not just uh, actor musicians, if you know what I mean. Well, we do. We did cover that Harry played uh, piano lessons or d- took piano lessons at age seven. So clearly good. Yeah. Well, and they'd all been in <laughs> bands and stuff like that, too. And so they yeah. they definitely knew what they were doing and why that's important is Spinal Tap is legit played by all these guys. The music is performed yeah. by them. All the music was written by all three of them and Rob Reiner. So that was incredibly important to them. And I think that that's what really makes this stand out. I was reading that Christopher Guest was really obsessed with making sure that the scenes of the concert footage matched up with the what they were doing so that it showed that they knew how to play their instruments. Yeah. Which is a huge pet peeve of mine. I, I can't stand when I watch m- movies with musicians And they're not even kind of on the right part of the guitar or the drums aren't matching up. It bugs the crap out of me as a musician. So I appreciate that attention to detail, too. But I think that that's what also led to a bit of confusion. And I would say the only thing I can liken this to would be years later when the Blair Witch Project came out. Mm. And that there was kind of the, the initial reaction was really confused like is this an actual band that we just didn't know or is this a fake band and you think it would be obvious until we start talking about some of the scenes in the movie and it was so relatable to so so many musicians that they were like maybe this is really just a documentary of a band on tour well and they have 
they have so much skill at what they do and there is such a thorough history of the band. I could see that confusion. And I'm interested that you also thought of the Blair Witch because as I was researching, I was thinking about when you and I saw it in the theater, the Blair Witch movie, and there were people out front talking about how it was real because they truly believed it was real found footage. So a similar effect. Yeah, especially because when films that are are like mockumentaries or, or spoofs or whatever, take it a step further into real life. It can, it blurs the lines of reality. Mm-hmm. And with the Blair Witch Project, uh, you know, they had done the whole fake documentary about the Blair Witch Project and they had people calling and, and concerned. And there was, for those of you who didn't witness or experience the Blair Witch when it came out, you'll never understand what a great job they did marketing. For those of us who, experienced it all from day one to the point of seeing it in the theater, it was good reason why a lot of people were still confused and wondered if it was real. Mm -hmm. Spinal Tap's the same way, because what happened was they did an album, too. They did shows. They did signings in character. And it was confusing to people, because if these were actors... Why could they play concerts and play these instruments yeah. really well? And it's so there was a lot of confusion. And it also created this longer legacy for Spinal Tap that is, are they a fake band or are they a real band? Because it started as a fake band, but they have actual albums. They wrote music. They played shows. They had hits. Like, at what point does it stop becoming a joke and they really are a band? I think it can be both. Yeah. Both serious and silly. So that's something that I really enjoy about this film because there's other films that have blurred those lines like Cannibal Holocaust or something where you're not quite sure if it was real or not. There was confusion, but Spinal Tap just played it so straight that if you weren't in on the joke, which we'll find out later too, some very famous people thought it was real. They thought it was serious and because they related to it so much. So before we get into some scenes that stand out for us, let's just give a general synopsis for those who need a refresher. Yeah, I think we've all seen this film. A walkthrough would be a waste of time uh, as you need to watch it. If we walked you through it and told you the jokes, I think that would be weird. It would be weird. And ineffective. So I'll just give you a super quick, quick synopsis in case you need a refresher. This is Spinal Tap or this is Spinal Tap, a rockumentary by Martin DeBerge. (laughs) <laughs> That's the alternate title. Is about a fictional metal band. I think we've covered that from England. The film is shot in a documentary style and it follows them on a leg of their American tour, sort of later in their career. The film is obviously satirical, a uh, take on serious documentaries that already existed at the time. But wh- what makes it really exceptional is that, as we said, most of it was improv. So as you watch this and you think about it, Think about coming up with that kind of stuff on the spot. It's really remarkable to watch. The cast of the film is enormous. We already kind of covered the main characters, but I wanted to point out a few other stars to look for if you haven't seen it in a while. Obviously, we see Rob Reiner as Marty or Martin DeBerge. We have Ed Begley Jr. in there. Yeah, he's the first drummer. Yeah. <laughs> Fran Drescher. Uh, Dana Carvey plays a mime. As does Billy Crystal. Paul Schaefer is in there. And oh, he's, yeah. He's, he's still... got a great scene. He really, he, he's a, I love that, that part. Yes. Angelica Houston is in there. Yeah. And Fred Willard. And there are just tons of other 80s stars in there that you can find if you're an 80s fan, I guess. But yeah. Those are some of the names that are really fun for me to pick out when I'm watching this. Yeah, it's really fun to see everybody pop up, but also just that general story of following them along a tour. And if anybody who's ever been in a band knows, tours never go as planned. And it's just all the mishaps and things that happen along the way that make this film fun. What's interesting is that although it is all improv, a lot of the scenes come from stories they heard or real life experiences or loosely based on this or that. And what's probably more fascinating is some of the more famous scenes later became like real moments in people's careers that seem like Spinal Tap was spoofing them, but they hadn't happened yet. And so 
some of the scenes that stand out are are pretty simple, straightforward, iconic. You know, things like the the uh, craft services table and backstage using miniature bread and Christopher Guest characters really confused as to why there's normal sized lunch meat, but miniature slices of bread and he throws a fit about it. Like all these little tiny things that are about showing life on the road and how some of them might be a bit of divas and expecting stuff to other scenes that are more relatable to musicians, like getting lost backstage and trying to, oh, yeah. you know, find your way to the stage. That actually, interestingly enough, when you read up on this movie, was probably one of the scenes in this whole film that most professional musicians related to. Like a lot of musicians, when they saw that scene, said, that's all, hap- we've all had that happen, where you're trying to just get to the stage and you don't know how don't to know get to there. Go. Yeah. Yeah, there's been a lot of musicians that have credited it with saying, this really uh, captures my story and my band on the road. But there are other minor things, like when they got stuck playing at an Air Force base. Yeah. That actually happened to some people. And what's funny is that scene came from somebody else relaying that to, I think, Christopher Gass. He was saying, you know, we got we ended up getting stuck playing at an Air Force base. And he thought that was funny. So they put it into the film. But after the film came out, other musicians came forward and said, that's funny. We ended up getting stuck playing at an Air Force <laughs> base, too. So it's like it just became really relatable to so many musicians. And I think what started as what was supposed to just be a comedy for the average viewer became more of a a deeper sense of identity for uh, working musicians of like really capturing what it's like to have to deal with going on tour when things don't go your way. Yeah, I read from comments from bands like... uh, Metallica, Nirvana, The Misfits, I heard from Dee Snider, Jimmy Page, Ozzy, all like seeing the humor in it and really relating to it. Mm-hmm. But I found two who did not. Oh, who was who were the the sore thumbs? Well, one was just kind of weird and made sense. The Edge from U2. Okay. Uh, said he cried. Oh, because of how realistic it was. Yeah, I think it was more about the business end of it that upset him and then um <laughs> This maybe has something to do with it, but Steven Tyler really wasn't a fan. He he didn't think it was funny. And perhaps it has something to do with the fact that their album, Rock in a Hard Place, had Stonehenge on the cover. Interesting. Before we even get there, before we open the can of worms with Stonehenge, Mm -hmm. you mentioned Ozzy. He's one who thought it was real. He thought this was a real band <laughs> well it's not i don't think it's hard to fool Ozzy. yeah and then when he found out it wasn't he thought it was amazing because he said well they did seem kind of tame on tour but all of it was identifiable to him too and uh-huh. I just like all these people just gravitated towards it and could relate to it so stonehenge let's talk about that okay so aerosmith has that the big thing was this back and forth between speaking of of Ozzy, although he wasn't in there anymore, was Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath said they were making fun of their their tour because of Stonehenge. Here's what happened, though. This is a true okay. story. Black Sabbath went on tour, and they wanted one of the stage props to be Stonehenge. And there was some miscommunication with the dimensions. What? It really happened? And instead of it being super small, it came twice as big as it was supposed to be. Here's the kicker. This film was made a year before that event <laughs> happened. <laughs> How insane is that? That's crazy. It's too good. The other thing is it's spoofing hard rock at the time. You know, mm-hmm. like Rob Reiner said, he went to a Judas Priest concert to get the idea of, of how things went. But... The other genius part of this is that it spoofs other uh, genres of music. Because when you like a band that's been around for a while, you go back and you realize maybe they've gone through different phases of their career. And if they were around starting in the 60s, there's a good chance they were, you know, folk band or something like that. And one of the selling points that confused people on if this was a real documentary or not is they do really, really great cutaways to Spinal Tap before they were Spinal Tap. Yeah. And the different incarnations of them. 
Starting with like that Beatles British invasion style with that track, Give Me Some Money. Yes. It's so good. And keep in mind, they wrote and performed these songs. The songs are so good. They're really, really good. And then, you know, their next one is in the 60s. They're like the flower child type band, the psychedelic, psychedelic. rock. Yeah. What's that song called? Um, Listen to the Flower People. <laughs> it's really funny. It's just that their commitment to these characters and the genres are so believable. Yeah, their body language changes as they match the decade. It's perfectly seamless. Yeah, and so then it gets to their their recent version is Spinal Tap, this metal band that's loud, you know, and stuff. Yeah. It's just so well done. Speaking of also things that kind of bleed into real life, I got these confused and I had to look up and look this up and, and confirm it. I was always under the impression that that scene in the film of Spinal Tap, when they're going over the various albums they've put out over the years, Uh which is great. I love when that happens. One of them is called Shark Sandwich. Yeah. And they say that the review is just simply two words, uh, shit sandwich. (laughs) I always thought that that was based on the real life review from Quiet Riot. Do you know that story? No. So Quiet Riot... The same year, 1984, put out that album, uh, Condition Critical, Mm -hmm. and Rolling Stone just put out a two-word review (gasps) that said, Condition Terminal. Oh! And I always thought, oh, that's funny, they used that and spoofed it in Spinal Tap, but it came out first, so now I'm wondering... Was that just a weird coincidence, or did Rolling Stone editors see Spinal Tap? I don't know. Oh, they had to. They had to go, you know what? I need to do a two-word review. I'm going to put that in my back pocket and just wait for the right opportunity. (laughs) But it seems like another case of when the spoof becomes real life. Oh, that's funny and really interesting. Yeah. There's so many great scenes. I would say one of my highlights, you know, we talked about, we're not going to get into them all, but... There's a really great... Every time they cut to the live performances on Mm -hmm. stage are probably my favorites just because they're selling it. And, you know, the scene where they're all supposed to hatch out of these alien eggs and Harry's character can't get out. And then by the time the song ends, his egg opens up and then he realizes he has to get back in really fast. (laughs) Obviously, the Stonehenge scene is absolutely iconic and it holds up. I cannot see that without laughing every single time, even though I know it's going to happen. Yeah. I always laugh at how ridiculous it is. All these scenes are just so fun to watch and they hold up over time. But there's also this this nugget of truth in them. Mm-hmm. Their concerts constantly being canceled. But also sometimes being really full concerts yeah. with fans and other times like nobody's there or everybody's confused of why they're there. I think that really because, you know, you've been in bands. My, a lot of my friends have been in bands and I've been to concerts that are full and empty. And it really I think any musician or musician adjacent person could see that and relate. Yeah. And it, what I like, too, about Spinal Tap is that it can relate right down to the basic, the smallest local band. Mm-hmm. Because when you play an out of town show, it's always a question mark of will Roll it get canceled? Will it get moved? Are we able to stay where we thought we were going to spend the night? Like all these things come up and inevitably nothing ever goes as planned. So it's just brilliant. And I think that's why this kept building in status. What's the crazier part is that it became such a part of pop culture. You know, probably Mm -hmm. one of the most famous scenes of Spinal Tap is when Nigel's giving the tour of his guitars and his amps Mm -hmm. and then clearly goes over to his amp to show it customized and his goes to 11, not till 10, not to 10 because he wants that extra oomph, you know, when he needs it, he can crank it to 11. Anybody who's been in a band will say that at some point, like, I'll just turn it up to 11. What I thought was really funny, and I, I just noticed it on my own, I didn't realize it, but it is later, you know, people did write about it, is that it's the only film on IMDb <laughs> that they allowed the the rating the star, of, the star rating to go up to 11 instead of 10, That's which really I thought sweet. was pretty funny. But it just, all these inside jokes of the movie became uh, cultural jokes yeah. that are now shorthand. For anybody who kind of grew up on pop culture of the 80s, you can make a reference to Spinal Tap and people know what you're talking about. And that says a lot about the power of their writing and their improv and everything like that. I think it's a very rare 
case for something like this to happen. I agree. And the film, when it was released, actually was critically praised. So it was well received right when it was released, but it wasn't commercially a hit initially. It was the release of, as we see so many times, the VHS that led to its widespread cult-like status that the film continues to hold. And actually, in 2002, the film was noted as culturally significant by the Library of Congress, and it's going to be preserved by the National Film Registry. <laughs> I thought that was cool. That's interesting. Yeah, and you can get their albums. We have we have the oh, yeah. This is Spinal Tap. It's a black album. We have it on vinyl. That's what came out in 84 to support the movie. But they released two more albums after that. They did the infamous 1992 break like the wind uh, <laughs> which we have on cd i don't have it on vinyl and then they did a new one in 09 called back from the dead i don't have that and i haven't heard it but i've heard it's kind of reworking some of the older songs and stuff but they okay. do have singles they have vinyls that you can listen to and that's the other part of this is uh, at the core of it like i said they are a band they're just comedians and they didn't stop there They've kept these characters going through their entire careers. Yes. Uh, one thing that I don't think we even discussed it was we were talking about Harry's career and being the most successful is that what he went on to do was the voice of several key characters from The Simpsons. Like yeah. He's one of the core cast members of The Simpsons. And I mean, that's where he made his fortune. But Spinal Tap had, a, you know, a little cameo on The Simpsons. They played benefit shows. My favorite one that they ever played was a, a one show in, it was in England. I don't remember if it was Wembley Arena or something like that. But I think it was. What was the title of it? It was uh, the One Night Only World Tour. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was to kick off their world tour of one show. Yeah. <laughs> it was just great. So they've kept these characters alive and relevant and in pop culture for a reason, because uh, people just adore it. It's, it's it's funny. It's funny to see those characters come back. Christopher Guest brought everybody back to rehash this trio in a different form as a folk band in, in The Mighty Wind. So you'll see all of them mm -hmm. together again, but as different characters playing songs that they wrote too. It's just kind of a, a warming moment when you see these guys get back together. It reminds me of any time I see Dana Carvey and Michael Myers get back together. Mm -hmm. Like when you have duos or trios that worked really well together, it's fun to see them. There was... Uh, in more recent years, I don't know if you read up on this, a massive lawsuit that I yeah, think Harry started and then Harry. everybody else got on board too because they lost all the rights to their music. They weren't getting any royalties at all. They didn't get anything from well, this. it was originally released through one company and then switched to Studio Canal or something. Yeah, so they were basically saying, hey, like this is our intellectual property and we're, we deserve this. It all got settled. It got settled out of court or whatever. Mm -hmm. They got the rights to their music back. But when I read that, I thought, I know why, is because they're planning something. And I did not know this mm -hmm. until researching this. As of 2022... In May! There is a sequel planned for Spinal Tap <laughs> with all the original people. And I'm very excited because in 92, with the break like the wind, they did like a TV special. Yeah. But it wasn't a legit sequel like what they're planning right now i'm so excited i'm very excited because normally i'm apprehensive when people try and dust off something that was really successful it was a cult hit you can't really recapture that lightning in a bottle but what i would say is different about spinal tap is it never stopped showing up and pop they never stopped doing tv appearances or random concerts here and there so it's not like we haven't seen spinal tap since 1984 right so we're kind of ready to see more of them like even with bill and ted as much as i loved seeing a new movie it was a little jarring to just go oh i guess we're just going to be back in this world again mm. and that's been happening a lot whereas yeah. with this I think these guys can really pull it off. And I'm hoping that they spin that mockumentary really well to be the older, aged out rock stars. Yeah. The one thing that I'm hoping for, and we'll see if it happens or not, which is always bugs me when when people try and recapture a cult hit, is that they don't try and redo the same jokes. Like, 
Yeah. I don't know if I would laugh if they get lost backstage because that worked in the first film. Yeah. But do something kind of equally as funny that's relatable, but in a new way. So we'll see. I feel confident in their comic ability. So I I think that they're going to bring us fun new stuff. I'm so jazzed. I am too. And knowing that they'll bring new songs and everything else, yeah. I think it'll be great. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I don't know what everybody's opinion is about uh, Spinal Tap, but most people I meet, unless you're like really uptight, they they understand why it's popular. Maybe they didn't catch it when it was, you know, first kind of the sure. most potent. But if you've been in a band or you like sketch comedy or anything, how could you not love this? Also, it can't be overstated the level of influence that this has had. I mean, there is jokes, but I think there's a, a nugget of truth that Metallica's Black Album was inspired by the Black Album of Spinal Tap. Well, they jokingly said it on one of their documentaries that it was a nod to the Black Album by yeah. Spinal Tap. I don't know where the truth is on that, but they were at least aware of the fact that it existed. It's just everybody, it just worked its way into pop culture. And there are even things that I had no clue about that were inspired by Spinal Tap. The weirdest one I read, I don't know if you came across this, was J.K. Rowling, who wrote Harry oh. Potter, said she used Spinal Tap's drummers as a part of her storyline for the Harry Potter series. What? So I'm going to back this up. One of the reoccurring jokes throughout Spinal Tap's history and still goes till today is they keep dying. Every drummer dies. You know, either they choke on somebody else's vomit, <laughs> they spontaneously combust, whatever. It's been a joke. And so a lot of real life bands, um, when they go through a lot of drummers, joke about that, that mm -hmm. they're pulling a real Spinal Tap. But J.K. Rowling said that her teachers for the Defense Against Ugh. the Dark Arts, why they keep changing constantly, was because there's fear that something bad will happen to them if they take that position in the school, uh -huh. was directly influenced by the drummers of Spinal Tap. Oh, that's pretty cool. I think that's pretty funny, All too. Right. So you just never know how deep it can go into, you know, pop culture reference. Wow. Okay, well, we could, like I said, we could keep going. There's all kinds of really funny stories behind it, but I would encourage people to just do their own. We have um, the VHS, the, the DVD, all that. They do commentary, which we thought was going to be really revealing. We sometimes, if we have the DVD, we'll watch the commentary to get behind-the-scenes look at the, the filmmaking so that we can add that to our podcast. But in this case, uh, the commentary is all done in character, all yes. three of them talking over the entire film in character. So it's basically like you get just another version of the film on top of the film. Yeah, it's like them talking about having sold the, the castle behind them for $10,000. It's just so dumb. So crazy. It's really funny. I, and then I was like, well, this isn't helpful at all. As, as amusing as it is, this isn't giving me any new information. On our DVD, there's also a documentary or an interview with Rob Reiner. Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, well, at least I can listen to the director talk yeah. about the making of. I put that on. No. He goes He's in character the whole time <laughs> talking about what it was like to get the film funded in character. And I'm like, this is just <laughs> as useless. So <laughs> this is just how they, they play the game. Oh, yes. I, I love it. I'm all for it. If you are one of the rare few that haven't seen Spinal Tap, I strongly recommend it. It is so much fun to watch. Yeah. There's so many scenes that you will laugh about. And keep in mind that these guys were just all making it up on the fly. You know, mm -hmm. they just were trying to make a good movie. And in doing so, their sincerity and their talent made it all too real <laughs> for yeah. generations of musicians to go, unfortunately, that's our shared experience, too. <laughs> and that is the power of Spinal Tap. So... Um, you can find it anywhere and everywhere. I would check it out if you can. But that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I think that this is a really fun one to talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, if you like what you heard and you want to listen to more of us, you can listen to all of our back episodes at lasergraves.com or anywhere and everywhere you get your podcasts. Um, they're all there. We've got a lot of episodes. We're getting up there, even though we took a break. Our gift to you. <laughs> Our gift to you is a lot of nonsense. Yeah. So listen to that. If you want to follow us, we're on Instagram at Lasergraves. And 
like us, review us, rate us, whatever you want to do if you're into that kind of thing. We appreciate it. We appreciate it. We do not appreciate letters telling us what we missed. We know. (laughs) But most importantly, just tell a friend or somebody who you think might be into our podcast because we are a very tiny little podcast that just grows through word of mouth, really. And uh, we appreciate every single person who reshares our posts on their posts and stuff like that. It means a lot and it doesn't go unnoticed. So... And that's it. That that's it for this week. That's this is Spinal Tap, one of our favorite movies. We hope you enjoyed listening to our episode as much as we enjoyed talking about it. We will see you again in two weeks. Bye. Until then, keep rocking. <laughs> Bye.